Hi, this is Susie Gerhard, and I'm here in the Grotto Pod with Laura Fraser and Monica Campbell. So we're here inside the cozy, cozy Grotto Pod, um, which is a tiny little closet behind Laura Fraser's office, actually, here in the Grotto. This is the perfect recording studio. You know, you know, great recording studios are in small spaces. You don't want a big space. Yeah. Well done. Monica is a senior reporter and editor at Public Radio International's The World. I'm sure you've heard many of her stories and are familiar with her voice. She focuses on immigration and immigrant life in the U.S., and she's been very, very busy of late. The Grotto's Laura Fraser is here to talk with her about it. So, Monica, it's great to see you back at the Grotto. You used to be a member here uh, before you went back to Mexico City for the second time, I think, and now you're you're back in the Bay Area and uh, reporting for the world as an immigration reporter and editor. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's great to be back at the Grotto. I just loved the piece that you did for the world a little while ago, or actually, I think you did it for Frontline Dispatch uh, called The Boy in the Caravan. Um, Longer than the usual radio pieces you do. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about that piece and about why you decided to focus uh, in this story on one child from El Salvador, 15-year-old, I guess that's not really a child, kid named Vladi and his mother named Veronica, who uh, lives here in California. What, what drew you to that story, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, when it comes to people coming north, migrating north to the United States, um, one thing that a lot of people have in common is that there is someone often waiting for them in the United States. And I wanted to tell a story that connected that person, in this case, Veronica, Vladi's mom, waiting for her son to migrate north from El Salvador to join her in the United States and kind of go on that journey with her as her son reached the U.S.-Mexico border and then tried to enter the United States and to see what that was like as a mom. And then also I went to Tijuana and I met her son, Vladi, to see it from his perspective as well. And just to tell that story from both sides of the border as it was playing out in real time was really compelling to me. That's a really intimate thing to do. You're sort of the go-between between a mom and a son. Were you was that sort of strange? Were you carrying messages? What was that like? Well, when I went to meet Vladi for the first time in Mexico, his mom, you know, yeah, I was seeing her son before she was seeing her son, and they had been apart for a year. And I'm a mom, and I thought, how how strange that I'm kind of a, I'm a stranger to this family, and yet. I am seeing her son at this really vulnerable at this really vulnerable point in his life and I'm also seeing his mom all the time here in California and so it was it took a lot of trust and it was um I felt very privileged and appreciative of her allowing me to be with her son at that point in his life and knowing that perhaps there was 
something good about being able to tell their story to a wider audience. Was their story typical um, of people who have been migrating recently to the United States? And first of all, why was the mother here before her son? Why wouldn't she go with her son? And what were their reasons for leaving El Salvador? Was it violence? Was it poverty? That was a question that I got a lot from people was, how is it that her mother's here in the United States without her son? How could she put her son in one of these large migrant caravans alone? Uh, It should be noted that he actually left El Salvador with his grandmother. His grandmother escorted him to the border. Uh, It is not a uncommon story. Veronica left El Salvador to kind of pave the way north to see was this a journey that she would put her son on or make with her son. She needed to see for herself what was out there and and to see if this was a way out of El Salvador. She was leaving El Salvador because Vladdy's father is incarcerated um, because of gang-related violence and a homicide. She was facing threats for years from gangs as a result of that relationship. So she decided that it was time to go. When she got to the United States, she then realized, okay, I'm going to find a way to have my son migrate north like I did. And the migrant caravan, a group of people coming north to her, to Veronica, to the mom, made a lot of sense. She could have Vladi with his grandmother join a group, safety in numbers, moving north without spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a smuggler to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. To her, it made a lot of sense. So that's what they did. And so what happened to her when she got here? Um, Was she detained? Did she get a lawyer? Tell us a little bit what the process is like for someone who's seeking asylum under those circumstances in the United States. So when Veronica reached the U.S.-Mexico border, she got to Tijuana, and she approached border officials. She went up to the port of entry and said, I fear returning my country. I'm seeking asylum in the United States. The process is such, at least at that time, that she would be interviewed by an asylum officer. And if she could, if it was determined that she had reasonable fear, enough to continue on with the process, then she would be detained in the United States while the process continued. And that process can go in a lot of different directions. In Veronica's case, She was detained for seven months while she waited to get out on bond. And she didn't have a lawyer during that time. And she actually tried to get asylum from within a detention center, which is extremely difficult. She lost her first try at asylum. When she got out on bond, she got a lawyer and now she's trying to get asylum again. She appealed and and she's trying to you know, go through a process of winning asylum here in the United States. So it's extremely difficult. People are not let in and then suddenly granted asylum. It's a very complex process. It's often changing. And right now, 
an important change has happened recently in that Veronica in some ways got lucky because what we're seeing now is when folks go up and ask for asylum at the border, if they're not a family, if they're a single person and an adult, they are being asked, they are being forced to remain in Mexico while their cases proceed in the U.S., which is a very unwieldy process. It's very new. A lot of questions about about how that's going to work. But that's a major policy shift that is just barely beginning when it comes to U.S. immigration policy toward asylum seekers. But how can you seek asylum from the other side of the border? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. When I first heard about the policy of having asylum seekers remain in Mexico, I mean, every immigration lawyer that I talked to was just incredulous. They couldn't believe that this would actually be put in motion. There's so many questions. Are you going to have video conferencing with judges across the border? How are people going to actually come and appear in a court physically in the United States? Is that, will that happen? So it is happening. And they're, it's very complicated. There are, there's a lot of really excellent reporting happening right now about how people are missing their hearings in the United States because they're not able to cross the border escorted by border officials to get to the courthouse in San Diego. Wow. It's crazy. It is a really it's just the process is being turned upside down. And it's it is a incredibly it's already a really tough process. It is now becoming even tougher if you're not a family. Families are treated differently. Are they detained on the Mexico side of the border or they just find a place to stay? I mean, is it better not to be in detention in the United States? So that is a kind of evolving situation in Mexico. There are shelters in Mexico. There's a gymnasium in Juarez where people are staying. Uh, They're kind of, it's very makeshift. Um, We'll start to see how this really plays out as numbers increase. Right now, I think the latest count is just several hundred max are being treated this way, asylum seekers. So if we really get to a high volume, it will be interesting to see, you know, is where how is Mexico going to house perhaps thousands of people waiting for perhaps years as their asylum cases proceed in the United States? Because asylum cases can last a really long time. Uh, So there's still a lot of questions about how this is going to play out in the long term. Wow. So another big change in the whole immigration situation at the border is that um, I think it used to be much more single men coming over the border to work maybe construction in Texas, bring money back home to Mexico, and now it's more families. Is that right? Yeah. The the demographics have totally changed. Now you're seeing moms and dads with their kids kids of all ages, infants, babies, teenagers arriving to the border. Whereas before, like you like you said, it's absolutely right. It was typically a guy, single man, or a man with a family that he wanted to support, um, a seasonal worker, somebody. I mean, when I reported it on migration years ago in Mexico, I mean, I saw this evolve. I would meet often men who would come home for Christmas, 
after working for several months in the United States. It's never been easy lately to go back and forth across the border, but that was generally what we were used to seeing. Now we're seeing this completely different change. Now we're seeing this change, a very drastic change. And the framing of it is that it's gone from one of men often trying to avoid border agents and, you know, quote unquote, sneak across the border to families walking up to border agents and saying, I fear my, you know, I fear returning to my country. I'm fleeing violence and whatnot. Let me in. So it's a completely different dynamic. So if there were a wall, they wouldn't even be trying to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's the idea is that what is the wall keeping out if we are going to keep our asylum laws intact and allow people to ask, you know, for asylum legally, whether at a port of entry or even if they cross the border, they still have the right to seek asylum. So, Monica, why is it that we're seeing more and more families trying to get across the border? What's driving this wave of immigration? A lot of things. There's not one answer. There's not one factor. It depends on the country. It depends on the circumstance. So, you know, I talk, I've talked to Hondurans who say they're fleeing violence and uh, corruption that is not allowing them to, to live or make a living in their country. Um, Guatemalans, you see high rates of hunger in the highlands. You see climate change um, having, having an increasingly, uh, being an increasing driver when it comes to migration out of Central America. El Salvador, gangs. So it can be any mix of deep poverty, violence, insecurity, all kind of this perfect storm that is allowing, that is convincing people that they just don't see a future for themselves or their children. It's not enough that one man leaves the country and sends money back. It's that I don't see a future for my kids or myself, and I'm worried about our safety. We all need to leave. That's what's happening. It's a much more dire situation. I saw um, an article today in the New York Times that was really shocking about um, how apparently the Trump administration has taken domestic abuse, domestic violence off the list of reasons people women can come across the border. And, you know, there are just huge rates of basically femicide, particularly in Honduras. This this piece profiled a woman whose husband actually cut her legs off with a machete, um, who, you know, can't get asylum because that's not a reason. Um, but I was particularly struck that uh, that seemed to target vulnerable women. Under the Trump administration, asylum laws have become much stricter. And you're right. Uh, domestic violence, gang-related violence, asylum claims based on gang-related violence, on domestic violence in particular, it's become much more difficult to go for asylum based on that fear uh, or those types of fears. And those are the reasons that a lot of people would give for leaving Central America. So in some ways, if you're fleeing gang violence in El Salvador, you may have a really tough time winning asylum in the United States. 
this is something that it's never been easy to get asylum. I mean, I remember seeing a lawyer's case on domestic abuse, a woman who was fleeing domestic abuse, I think, from Honduras. This was in better times when it comes to this particular area of policy. And I saw his file. It took a year to build the case. The file was like a foot tall, her asylum case. I mean, the amount of documentation that had to go into getting, yeah, getting this woman asylum during the time of President Obama, it took a year of a lawyer's time pro bono to get her asylum. Now, good luck. It's so difficult. And the, the window's really closing. Who's paying all these lawyers? I mean, none of these, very few of the people who are trying to get asylum have the resources to pay for a lawyer. Um, how do they get lawyers? Who's who's paying for them? Are they all pro bono people working for various nonprofit organizations? There's a whole network, legal network. It's like an all hands on deck moment. When I was in Tijuana recently, I mean, there's this headquarters for lawyers just cycling in and out of that part of the border and it's other parts of the border but that part of the border pro bono lawyers private firms who are allowing lawyers to be um, you know her kind of raising their hands and saying I want to be a part of that movement allowing them to go and spend a week on the border just to do intake um, there are a lot of NGOs dedicated to trying to provide legal services to migrants, but they're completely maxed out for the most part. They're really overworked. Like you talk to an immigration lawyer these days, you're talking to someone who's tired and really <laughs> overworked. And um, not everybody gets a lawyer. It's the lucky ones that get lawyers. I wonder how that happens. I mean, if you're in a detention center, are you just lucky if a lawyer just happens to wander in? I mean, how does it happen? There is a kind of a minimal amount of information that immigrants get or when they're detained and you get, and I hear everything from like one sheet of paper with four different numbers on it. Sometimes those numbers might not work. Sometimes you might not be able to make the call in time, but um they people are provided some information about the NGOs in the area, uh, but it's pretty minimal. And it does sometimes take a lawyer being in there helping somebody else who may catch wind of another person who may have a really strong case. It can happen just like that. Let's talk about, um, you know, the the people who support the build the wall, build the wall kind of movement. But what does it do to our national security to send, you know, people back to um, countries where there are a lot of, you know, gang violence and so forth. So those those problems that people are fleeing are not going to go away. And migration, I mean, people will find a way in oftentimes. So what we're seeing is that, you know, smuggling networks are sort of rubbing their hands together and thinking, gosh, if these people aren't going to get in the right way by going up and asking for asylum at the border, they will try and find a way in. And you will see a lot of these families fall into the hands of smugglers in very dangerous criminal networks. And that is going to be, I mean, putting people in really perilous situations. In terms of our national security, if we're not thinking of the reasons why people are leaving in a holistic, like, 
broad manner and thinking that the U.S. is divorced from these problems, then we're fooling ourselves. The U.S. is fooling itself if it thinks that it can just close itself off from what's happening in the rest of the hemisphere. And we've seen in the past, you know, people get deported. There's a level of desperation. There's a vacuum. Organized criminal groups can fill that vacuum. Cartels, corruption, failed states. I mean, this is not something that is not a recipe for a healthy hemisphere. Yeah. Trump recently said that he wasn't going to close the border now, but he would in a year if all drug trafficking didn't stop. And that view is sort of like it's all happening on the other side of the border. But it's really in the United States, that's where the demand for drugs is coming, right? I mean, it has to be sort of a both sides of the border. Trump was supposed to close the border this week. <laughs> And I, well, it's Friday and he's not. <laughs> so I when I hear I mean, I don't mean to make light of this, but when I hear that Mexico has a year to get its act together on <laughs> on, uh, you know, curtailing one of the largest, uh, most profitable criminal organizations in the world. I mean, you can't take that seriously. It's not a serious proposal. And it will likely change and there will be likely some sort of peddling back because as we just saw, the idea of closing the border to the extent that that's even possible would be economically catastrophic for parts of the U.S. economy. Um, so this threat now against Mexico to get its, you know, to get the drug, uh, you know, business in law, you know, take care of drugs in a, in a year. It, this is not a way to approach, you know, this this problem with any sort of like seriousness. Are the cartels getting stronger in Mexico? The cartels, the situation is far more complicated. I mean, it's far different than when you had a much smaller number of cartels, and not that. That was uh, an ideal situation, but you have had a splintering of groups and infighting and turf battles that continue in Mexico that make larger parts of the country far less controlled, much more, you know, internal cartel battles that make life much more difficult. For people in Mexico. I mean, when I was on the border recently in Tijuana, I was really struck by how many people were leaving the state of Guerrero, you know, where you have a lot of um, heroin trade happening and a lot of other illicit drugs um, moving through. And and people were, you know, leaving Guerrero. I met people from Michoacan. I met people from Veracruz. I mean, it used to be mostly you'd see people from the north being heavily affected by cartel violence. Now it's like much, much bigger parts of the country. And I think the cartels have just got their hooks into so many more parts of Mexico as the trade. It's one of the largest businesses in the world. When there's violence in Mexico, I know a lot of Mexicans, and I've spent some time there, will say, oh, it's entre ellos. It's just between them. But how do you think the violence is affecting you know, everyone? Yeah, it's, there are bubbles in Mexico and 
I think Mexico City can feel like that as well, where people feel distant from cartel-related violence and violence related to organized criminal groups. And it's not the case. Um, people are affected in a, in a lot of ways that they may not see in Mexico uh, when you see corruption related to the cartels sort of infecting every level of government, uh, every level of law enforcement. And to see how that plays out, it's hard to see sometimes in daily life in a place like Mexico City, but you certainly see it when you get out of those bubbles and you see how people are leaving whole you know, small towns and villages because they can't live there safely anymore or they can't have an honest living anymore or their son has been disappeared and they no longer feel safe living in that village anymore, or that small town anymore. And that's where you really see like this is a real fear that people can live, you know, they're living on a daily basis related to these organized criminal groups. And that that's not something that is abstract to a large part of Mexico. Yeah. A lot of people were optimistic when AMLO became president. How's he been doing in his first hundred days? Well, I think it's still early. And I think he has these, you know, really his the challenges he faces are not unlike the challenges that other Mexican presidents have faced in that Mexico. I mean, especially when you think about the Mexico-U.S. relationship, Mexico is still very much um, tied to the United States in massive economic ways and struggles to wield the leverage in that way. I mean, we see President Trump, you know, with the changing of NAFTA, with uh, tariffs, with, um, you know, trying to change how migration policy works in the U.S. and how that affects Mexico. It'll be interesting to see how Lopez Obrador, um, what where he spots leverage that Mexico can use to have Mexico have a stronger kind of seat at the table when it comes to negotiating with the United States. I don't quite see that yet. I don't see it articulated yet. I don't see Lopez Obrador responding to Trump in a way that is like giving me a clear idea of how he's going to be a presence at that table. Right now, there's a lot of back kind of backdoor dealing with the administration. Um, and Mexico's in a really tough place. The U.S., you know, the saying is that when the U.S. sneezes, Mexico catches the cold. And that's still very much, you know, what happens. But a lot of businesses in the United States, like the auto industry, for example, are dependent on Mexico for parts. And, and God knows we all drink Corona. I mean, it's Mexico's you know, kind of a huge power uh, in some respects. Absolutely. I mean, the cross-border trade, the trucking, that's why we saw Trump back away from shutting down parts of the border because we saw it just not too long ago when there was a temporary, what, four to five hour closure at the California-Mexico border at the San Diego Port of Entry, which really disrupted people's lives who commute back and forth every day. Millions of dollars could be lost in commerce and just daily trade. Yeah, at the same time, while Mexico is not as powerful as the United States, it does. it is our most important trading partner. Yeah, yeah. So you uh, lived in Mexico City uh, 
for for a while you're now back in the Bay Area but when you were in Mexico you were the representative to uh, the committee to protect journalists and I know that Mexico has a terrible terrible situation with journalists being assassinated particularly in in small towns I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and also you know you as a reporter in Mexico did you feel personally threatened I I always defer to the situation for local journalists because they really face the immediate danger and long-term danger. I mean, as a foreign correspondent in Mexico, I could go report on a story in a dangerous part of the country and leave. If you're a local journalist, you're staying. And you're staying after perhaps writing a story that really pissed off someone powerful who could make a phone call, who could make a phone call and get you followed, and suddenly, you know, you're um, you're assassinated on the street, and they'll never find the killer, and no one will ever get punished, and there's complete impunity in the country. Uh, that's what happens. I feel I fear for the local journalists, and right now, it's still very dangerous for journalists in Mexico. The criminal groups are at large. Larger parts of the country are dangerous for reporting the border, interior, and sometimes it's not the cartels. Sometimes, you know, in the state of Veracruz, there were powerful politicians being implicated in the deaths of journalists. That is not too uncommon. So it's not just the cartel. It can be, um, it can definitely be local politicians. It can be law enforcement. It, you, you can face a lot of threats from a lot of different directions as a and, reporter in Mexico. And so what then is the result with the news that people are reading? How's it affected it? So, I mean, there are a lot of amazing journalists in Mexico. And in some ways, I mean, you, when journalists are pressed against the wall, they'll fight back even stronger. So you'll see, like, incredible investigative journalism happening right brave now in Mexico. People. Really, Absolutely. really brave people. Yes. And so... That's so inspiring. At the same time, not everybody has that cover, you know, or, or it can go back to Mexico City, for example. So you see self-censorship. Maybe you'll see people backing, definitely see people backing away from sensitive stories. You'll see publishers telling people not to run particular stories or who may be themselves compromised heavily, you know, because of threats they're receiving. So um, it's hard to get really, it's hard to get the straight story from certain parts of Mexico because it can be hard to tell the real story. Um, But I am also always amazed by journalists who just break through those barriers and and still do amazing reporting. Are journalists doing any workarounds to, to, I don't know, report anonymously or, you know, somehow protect themselves while they're reporting to get the stories out? doing it in social media or something like that? You do see, I mean, there are definitely impressive networks of independent journalists kind of banding together and watching out for each other and trying to form better safety protocols to be able to, like, not be the lone journalist out there. And that there's a network of journalists watching out for each other. That's definitely happening in Mexico. It's like the caravan of journalists. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you don't want to be... 
you don't want to be reporting alone in Mexico. I mean, that's one thing I really enjoyed in Mexico was that there, that idea of competition just it wasn't cool. You know, it was like the idea was, hey, are you going out to report somewhere? Want to come with me? Like, let's work together on these stories. We're not going to own the cartel story. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's happening. So let's do uh, let's let's report, you know, as a group or team up and. There is safety in that. You know, I was often sometimes alone out there reporting because sometimes that's just the case. And, um, yeah, I think it's definitely better to be with somebody in Mexican journalists. Um, you, know, you see that teaming up. Let me just ask you about your life in Mexico City versus your life back here in the Bay Area. Um, what do you miss about Mexico? It's my second home. I've lived there, you know, more than eight years. It's, um, I miss the rhythm of life. I miss um, going to people's homes on Sundays for the comida, the, the, the meal. And, you know, you, you invite people over and you say, hey, come over at two o'clock and they'll come around three and then it's like 11 p.m. and you're finishing some mezcal and, you know. <laughs> What is that term for for speaking after you've eaten? There's a Spanish word for it. Sobremesa? Sobremesa. So after you finish eating, it's like the sobremesa. It's the conversation over the table after the meal's done, which, you know, those, those are like the best moments when you're, you're just having great conversation with close friends and nobody's looking at their watches. And it's just a very different to me, I miss that rhythm of life. I mean, people are busy all over the world, but, you know, I have a little boy now, and we get invited to birthday parties. No knock against, like, barrier parents or parents in the United States, but they're like, it starts at 1130 and ends at 1 p.m., and this, it's, like, very, these, like, windows of time that are set here, and you better not be and in Mexico, I mean, a birthday party, having some sort of beginning and end date that is within two hours is nuts. Like you would be <laughs> sitting alone waiting for people to show up and incredibly frustrated. It's I just like that there's this flow and uh, there's just a lot of give and take and people just really enjoy being with each other. And not that that doesn't happen in the United States, but the rhythm is different. I often feel like people in Mexico are p much more polite than people in the United States. Yeah, <laughs> it's complicated. It is complicated, yeah. I mean, I feel like whenever I needed to leave a party in Mexico because I had to get up early for whatever reason to go to work, perhaps, um, you know, it's 10 o'clock and, oh, you can't leave now. Why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? I've gotta go you know and, and um but i i like that there's that idea of like it's impolite to leave a party early and and you need to stay and you need to have another you know shot of tequila or mezcal <laughs> and don't worry about that and i i just um and you know people also they're you say hello and buenos dias and it's just a much more like pueblo feeling yeah in a big city. Like, yeah. it's this big city, and it felt like a pueblo sometimes. Yeah. And I love that. Now, I know your mother's from Nicaragua, yeah. and you're bilingual. Um, 
is your son becoming bilingual? Yeah, so he speaks perfect Spanglish. <laughs> two and a half. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he's going to a Spanish immersion preschool, and it's awesome. We, we, I think it's really important. I didn't learn Spanish growing up. Um, my, you know, mother faced, it, it was a different time. You know, where learning Spanish, there wasn't a, that wasn't a priority. It was more about fitting in than it was about. It was about assimilation, and I want my kids to assimilate. I want my kid to integrate into as many cultures as possible in the world. And to me, language is a key. And knowing his family in Latin America in their language is really important. Because once I learned Spanish... I was able to get to know my family in Central America at a completely different level. My relatives in Nicaragua, to have political discussions with them. And I want that for my son. And I want him to be able to engage with parts of you know, Latino life in the United States in a way that feels you know, real to him. And to know that, that it's just crazy to me that you know bilingual education is shrinking in America at a time when we are more dem- we're more diverse than ever and I just want to try and have my son value you know speaking as many languages as possible. People often compliment me for speaking more than one language and I'm like well how about all of the people who work in all of the restaurants like you know there are so many people out there who are bilingual and you know, it's, it is, it opens another world for sure. Tell me, um, just, it, it, I'm sure can be so depressing for you to be on the immigration beat. And I'm just wondering if you feel like there are any bright spots in, you know, in Mexico and, you know, kids and in the immigration situation, what are, what are you seeing? What are you optimistic about? If anything, maybe the Trump will lose. I it's... don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to pull that one out. Look, our our um, our court system, in a lot of ways, is proving to be like I feel like people are getting a, like a civic education about how the court system works in some ways. And we saw with the travel ban, although that didn't quite go the way a lot of people wanted with the Supreme Court decision. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of bright spots. There's so many groups out there and and not just advocates, but I edited a story recently from Arizona. Families are being released by immigration officials virtually out into the streets because the current system of detention is at capacity for families. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But families are being released oftentimes at Greyhound bus stations without tickets. And you see these families on the corner mm-hmm. and the story was how there is this really large network in Phoenix but this is happening everywhere of people coming together saying I will take this family in wow you know and and with Veronica Aguilar the woman in the story that you know we started with for frontline a family took her in they did not know her they heard about her case they took her in. She's living with them still with her son and in the in-law unit. And these are open-ended stays in some ways. And people are doing that. And that, to me, is a part of this story. It's not just 
oh, look at, you know, these poor people. There's there are communities doing a lot to help people. And also a lot of the a lot of these migrants have a lot of agency themselves. I mean, they are becoming aware they're 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 part of lawsuits. You know, I mean, you see people doing incredibly courageous things, being part of lawsuits fighting the Trump administration as an undocumented immigrant. That's incredible. So I do see efforts being made to try and go against what the administration is doing in terms of immigration policy. It's just harder to see those efforts when the story is so hijacked by what Trump is saying on a daily basis. Yeah. I was in Tucson last weekend uh, with something called the Op-Ed Project, and I was in a room of people, every single one of them, in one way or another, whether it was through the healthcare system, the legal system, or other means of support, were working on behalf of immigrants. And it was... It was amazing to me just, you know, that there really are a lot of people out there who are trying to make the situation better. Yeah, I think one thing we've seen under the Trump administration, look, a lot of people were deported under previous administrations. And one thing that we're seeing with Trump is that it's sort of it's activated so many people that people are interested in the story. This story has been going on for a long time. People have been deported for a long time. Families have been separated for a while. But now you see more people engaged and aware and interested in helping. And and that is something that's definitely a difference um, from just a couple of years ago. Great. Well, Mo- Monica, thank you for coming back to the grotto today. We miss you. <laughs> I love it. I, it's so cool. There wasn't a podcast here. I know. We have a little bitty podcast studio now. <laughs> well, go grotto. And, you know, the network here, it's such a great place, not just so few places like this in San Francisco where you can actually have an office and afford an office and a place like San Francisco. I just hope the grotto is here for years and years to come. We're working very hard to keep it accessible. You know, our rents keep going up and up and up, but we keep trying to have creative solutions to old school San Francisco right here. Yeah, yeah, we're we're trying to keep a cheap place for writers to write. So wish us luck. Okay, thanks, Laura. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, both of you guys, for such an enlightening, at times sobering, um, and incredible conversation. Grotto Pod is produced by me, Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarner with help from Kristen Cosby. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>